Hi, this is Chris Castle, and you're listening to Your Morning Coffee, the podcast with Jay Gilbert and Mike Etchert. Weekly music news for the new music business. From Billboard, artists without labels must be the CEO of their brand. Also from Billboard, fraudulent streaming is on the rise, but solutions exist. Another from Billboard, labels are still pushing for 360 deals, but the terms are better. And from our friend Chris Castle at Music Technology Policy, more bizarre goings-on at the Copyright Royalty Board, this time with additional Google, fava beans, and a fine (laughs) Chianti. And if you haven't seen Silence of the Lambs, that's what that refers to. We've got this, we've got more. Jay is back, and boy, his arms are tired. We're going to hear all about his trip to Nashville, so we got a lot of great stuff. This is the Your Morning Coffee podcast. We are kicking it into gear, because here we go. Stand by for transmission. This is London calling. Wake up! Your morning coffee, the weekly music news. For the new music business. It's the highly curated, agitated, advocated, moderated, and liberated digital music information that you need to know. We are your digital music authority. And now, from our studios in Hollywood, California, here's your hosts, Jay Gilbert and Mike Etchart. Jay, you are back from Nashville, wow. hot, muggy Nashville, with yeah. all with a thousand of your closest friends hanging out. Yeah, I was surprised at the turnout. It was really good. I heard this term a lot. It's great to see you in 3D. <laughs> exactly. And my God, you have a legs and a body. What a trip. Yeah. You know, it's yeah. it, it, we forget when you how long it's been. And yeah. I think you and I are gonna go to the NAM show uh next yes. month here in here in Southern California. And yeah. uh, same thing, you know, it's just it's a it's so nice to be out and to see people and yeah. oh, it's 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 yeah. wonderful. So the Music Business Association Conference recap. Jay, let's talk about what you saw and, and how great it was because it sounds oh like gosh. it was an awesome time. It really was. This Music Business Association Conference, Music Biz, it uh, is the artist formerly known as NARM. Uh, I know you remember NARM. Mm, you and I would go to NARM. Absolutely. Um, I've been going to this thing for 20 years or more. Um, this one was special. Um, I think partly because uh, the last couple of years they didn't have one in person. Yeah, we did the Zoom thing and you know we had some pretty cool workshops and that sort of thing. But this is the conference, in my humble opinion, And it was just so wonderful uh, going there, seeing all these people. They had so many great uh, presentations and DSP workshops and the conversation around 
um, women and around mental health and around, you know, um, well, we did a, a, a panel, which we'll get into because I was kind of surprised it wasn't planned or anything, but we had this really interesting panel. And the next morning, uh, this was on Monday, on Tuesday, I woke up and there was a story about it in Billboard, which that's always a thrill. Uh, you know, it doesn't matter how many times you've done it or how long you've been in the business. That's always kind of the, you know, the benchmark, the watermark there with, uh, with Billboard. So that was pretty cool. But just really quickly, I wanted to tell you that um, some of the things that I attended that I thought were really, really cool. Um, there were all sorts of, you know, side meetings, but they had some panels on, you know, data analytics and on the state of fandom and spatial audio, something that's near and dear to your heart. Um, Our I hearts. went to a really cool, um, it wasn't a panel, it was more of a presentation. Like Glenn and I did a presentation and right after it, um, uh, Mike Warner did a presentation on uh, DSP tools, which was super cool. Um, and uh, I met up with uh, Garrett Levin, uh, the president of DEMA, and we had a really nice lunch. And we were like old friends. Like we've never met in person, mm -hmm. but we like he hit the table and we just started talking about music. And he's a music freak, you know, a la Merc Mercuriatus, like at that mm -hmm. level. And we just... Mm -hmm you know, brothers from another mother kind of thing. And uh, he had a really cool uh, panel that afternoon. And listen, it was, it was a blur. The week went by, like we got there Sunday and we were having dinner and drinks with people Sunday night. Um, I met with uh, Jorge and Oz and some of the fine folks at uh, Symphonic that night. Uh, we had drinks and it was just so amazing. All these presentations and workshops and just, but that's not the main reason you go. Cause you could see some of that stuff online. The mm -hmm. reason you go is, you know, before we hit record, I was telling you that, you know, you walk through the lobby and somebody goes, Hey, you, and they walk over and they talk to you or you're waiting in line for coffee, you know, and I had this guy come up and, and talk to me and those conversations uh, were fantastic. And the last thing I'll say on it is after you do a presentation or a panel, people will, you know, a few people line up to come over and, and talk to you. And some of those conversations where someone will say, Hey, you know what? I've been listening to your morning coffee, the podcast, and it's really helped me as a DIY artist, or it's really helped me as a new artist manager to understand some of these things and, you know, hugs all around. It was very heartwarming. Um, I wish nice. you could have been there to see it, but yeah. it was amazing. I think I'm going to make sure I, I, I attend next year for sure. Um, I will uh, mention something you briefly mentioned. You, you mentioned Glenn, Glenn Peoples from Billboard, and you and Glenn's uh, new podcast, because two podcasts for you is not enough, Jay. You need no. you needed one more, and you're, you're behind the set podcast. <laughs> I can't even say it. Behind the set list podcast uh, dropped last week, your first yeah. episode. Thanks for bringing that up. I really appreciate it. This the idea really came from Glenn, Glenn Peoples from Billboard. He used to do, you know, uh, Billboard Bulletin. Now he's kind of their lead analyst. And he's always been, you know, for a decade, my kind of go-to guy at Billboard. Like, what does this mean? And he's the guy that's on the earnings calls. Yes. And, re you know, <laughs> there's, there's two types of articles that you read in the music business. One is um, the people like Glenn that write and do the research. And then there's the one where people take what they do and kind of put a spin on it. So I always try to distill to the guys that are actually like Chris Castle, who you mentioned, yes. he's one of those, right? So yeah, uh, 
we started talking about a podcast a couple of years ago, and it was originally we thought of this idea called um, Toys in the Attic, which we thought would be really cool because whenever you go see a heritage artist, whenever they play something off their new album, that's when people go get a beer or a hot dog or something. Mm-hmm. And we thought there are all these artists later in their career that are like Tears for Fears, you know, like Rick Springfield, you know, like uh, Sticks. There's so many of these artists that are putting out amazing Ann Wilson, you know, mm-hmm. um, putting out this amazing music, but because people go there to, you know, to hear the hits, they're not paying attention. We thought, wouldn't it be cool if we got behind those albums? But then it kind of morphed over the months into what we call behind the set list. And what we found is when you sit down with an artist and, and talk about their set list, no one really talks to them about their set list much. And they come alive. They light up. They get really into it. You know, Ann Wilson, for example, she put together all the set lists for Heart over the years and the love mongers and all of that and her solo stuff, of course. But the first episode of behind the set list is with Andy Grammer and that dropped this week. And I wasn't super familiar with anything other than his hits before I started researching the podcast. So I started watching a lot of YouTube videos um, and listening to his albums and I just found how inspirational it was. And one of the things he does that I've never seen anybody really do is during a performance, he'll just stand up to the mic and go into a poem. And it's inspiring. It's passionate. It's powerful. Like you're, whoa, where is this coming from? And then that will lead into a song, and then he'll play a song. Mm -hmm. And so when I spoke with him, I just told him, you know, I'd never never seen anything like that. And we just had a a wonderful conversation. But we've talked with Kurt Smith from Tears for Fears, and we've talked to... uh, who else have we talked to? We talked to um, Ann Wilson. We talked to, gosh, it's in the, I'll have to look. I'm, I'm forgetting right now because there's been so many of these <laughs> things we talked to. Uh, Simple Plan. We talked to Simple Plan. We talked to John yeah. Waite. We talked to superstar songwriter Brett James, who a lot of people may not know that name, but he's written nearly you know 30 songs. number yeah, you know one songs. hits. He's written with Daughtry and Bon Jovi, but most of his hits are on the countryside with Kenny Chesney and Jason Aldean. He co-wrote Jesus Take the Wheel with for Carrie Underwood. I mean, that conversation, uh, which we recorded this week in Nashville, oh my gosh, wait until you hear that. It is unreal. And I know I've said this on the podcast before, but watch It All Begins With a Song, that documentary, um, because Brett's all over that. Anyway, thank you for letting me um, rant about that, but I'm super excited about, you know, my third podcast, you know, which is, you know, behind the set list. Um, the first one dropped this week. I hope people will will check it out. Um, it's a little different. You know, like what you and I do is we like to kind of demystify the music business and dig into some of these stories and see what they mean. This is really more fun. It's really about an artist and what they play live. Absolutely. By the way, the guy that I get to talk to every week that you were just listening to, none other than my buddy Jay Gilbert. He is the co-founder of music marketing and strategy company Label Logic. He's the curator of the Your Morning Coffee newsletter and former executive with Universal Music, Sony Music, and Warner Music Groups, and of course, Fox Home Entertainment. And as if you see him in person, you will describe him as others have, which is, yeah, he kind of looks like a young Brad Pitt. Jay Gilbert. <laughs> looks more like a young uh, Pee Wee Ehrman. Uh, my uh, my co-host here, Mike Etchard, is longtime host of Sound and Vision Radio, formerly of SST Records, Warner Music, Capital EMI, 
and universal music. And honestly, he's the person who I, well, you are solely responsible for opening my mind and ears to Dolby Atmos and spatial audio. And in the last mm-hmm. few weeks, we, you and I have been having some of the greatest conversations surrounding that. And, you know, I got to visit Apple's uh, offices in Nashville this week, which I you know, hadn't seen um, because they, you know, they were shut down during COVID, of course. Um, but uh, Jay Lepas took me over and showed me their Dolby Atmos room. And it's very similar to what you showed me in Ojai, you know, with Bruce and with Greg. Very cool yeah, stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're, they're, they're in. They're in over there. Hey, Jay, of course, we need to talk about our sponsors because we are so lucky when we get to put this show on and when we talked about doing it that we had some folks come aboard and help us put it on. So I will let you start that with our sponsors. All right. Uh, Do it every week. Thank you. Your Morning Coffee podcast uh, is brought to you by our friends at Banzoogle. Um, Banzoogle now powers 60,000 musicians' websites, and I've built like three or four of them. It's the best, seriously. Uh, Built by musicians for musicians, Banzoogle is an all-in-one platform. makes it super easy to build a beautiful website and EPK for your music. All the features that you need for a professional website, all of them are built right in. Hosting and a custom domain name, dozens of fully customizable design templates, tools to help you sell your music and merch, commission-free, that's the key, commission-free crowdfunding, fan subscription features, mailing list tools to grow your fan list and send newsletters, social media integrations, and live support from their musician-friendly team seven days a week. Your Morning Coffee podcast listeners can go to bandzoogle.com and try it for free for 30 days. Just use a promo code morning coffee all one word and you'll get 15 percent off your first year of any subscription that's banzoogle.com promo code morning coffee and we are also sponsored by hypebot since 2004 hypebot has chronicled the new music industry and the trends and technologies that are changing how music is discovered consumed marketed and monetized it is edited daily by founder bruce houghton with help from alana bonilla hypebot and sister blog music think tank are published by live music discovery and marketing platform bands in town and yes bands in town over 65 million live music fans trust bands in town to get personalized concert alerts recommendations and messages from their favorite artists it is the number one artist service platform connecting over 550,000 artists with their super fans managers labels agents and artists access their own dashboard to manage and promote their tour dates across all platforms. Big thanks to Banzoogle, Hypebot, Bands in Town for giving us the hand up. That yes, we sir. To this out every week. We yeah. certainly appreciate it. Really well, do. Jay, what do you say we jump into some of these interesting and groovy, and in fact, uh, you're sort of involved literally in a couple of these articles. The first one, uh, which is from Billboard, artists without labels must be the CEO of their brand, in air quotes. And uh, this is uh, about, you know, the industry professionals talking about the role distributors, managers, and digital marketers can play in building an independent so artist career without label support. And, and listen, that is that is the new reality for all artists, isn't it? It really is. And this was written by Dan Rice. I, I sent him a little thank you note because, again, I was really surprised that uh, anyone uh, – would care about our panel. First of all, it was very well attended and to get a story in billboard about it. That's, that's pretty cool. Right. Yes. And so we had, um, a really, a really great group, um, on this, you know, I moderated it, which I was, um, super honored to be a part of this. Um, and we had on Hallie Anderson. Um, she was a co-founder of rare form and she, she was awesome. Um, we also had, um, 
Caitlin uh, Permenter, and she's from uh, Alchemy Artist Services. She's a co-founder of, of that company, that platform. And both of these companies are similar in what Label Logic does, where they help mm -hmm. artists and managers. So we had a lot of really great conversations, even in the green room. And I think we were all aligned uh, with uh, what we do and what our passion is. And then also on the panel is my friend Michael Burroughs uh, from Symphonic Distribution out of Nashville. Super smart guy, just a, a sweetheart and somebody you want to work with, right? You know, somebody yeah. told me years ago that this music business is less about the music and it's more about relationships and follow through. And I think there's some truth to that, that the, the music trends come and go, but these good people, like the people I just mentioned, you know, they're going to be around a while. Well, and follow through, you know, and, and a lot of, especially artists and, you know, we were actually talking about, we we're sort of talking about podcasts in general before we hit record and talking about how, you know, you have to make the commitment and you have to do it and do it and do it and keep doing it. And the follow through thing is really hard. And when you're talking, you, you, you talked a lot about in that panel about, you know, the, the role of managers and how important they are as well. But, but artists kind of have to be responsible for their marketing message and talk about uh, things like that. But boy, you have to have follow through and you have to stick with it. And it's hard, yeah. you know, it's, it it's easy hard. to start stuff like this, but it's hard to follow through and finish it. Yeah. And that's really where the, where the, where the metal re meets the highway. And yes, it's tough. Well, one of the things, well, before we get started with this, the link in your morning coffee somehow got broken, but mm -hmm. the first line in the story. And if you go to any of these, uh, any of the coverage from billboard, there's one link um, and that link did work in your morning coffee that goes to all of Billboard's Music gotcha. Biz 2022 coverage. And there's a lot of it. Glenn Peoples wrote a couple of pieces. Uh, Dan Rice's piece is phenomenal. But what Dan said is one of the most significant byproducts of the streaming era has been the increasing number of ways that artists can make money outside of the traditional record label system, right? You and I talk about that all the time, like, you know, experiences and sync licenses and you know, beats and loops and merch and all sorts of things, right? So there, there's often less attention paid to the actual ramifications of artists choosing to go that route and the roles that distributors, managers, digital marketers, and others play in filling that gap while using the data offered by digital service providers to help an artist succeed in which whichever way they choose. And we talked about that a little bit, how there's so much data available. You know, mm -hmm. if you are an artist, you can look at Spotify for artists, Amazon music for artists, Apple music for artists, uh, YouTube analytics. There's so many. And then there's vibrate and chart metric. There's so many areas where you can get really great data about what you're doing. And everybody on this panel believes that data is important, but it's not the only thing, you know, I'm just like playlists aren't the only thing. And I think that's really important that you use that data as a guide, but don't it don't let it dictate every decision that you make. You know, but and and you and I have talked about this a lot. It you know, if you're an artist, you know, your principal job is making great music um, or writing great songs or doing whatever it is in the artist slot you're doing. But boy, when you when you need to put different hats on and uh, then it becomes a challenge. And, and a, what I was really appreciative of, you kind of did a lot, you guys did a really good job about kind of talking about the different players in the ecosystem potentially of, of an artist that that can help you with a lot of those things. And of course, it starts with the managers and, you know, as uh, to say nothing, this is kind of the, one of the biggest understatements of that whole panel, which is one of the jobs that is ever changing and never gets less stressful 
is being a manager. And, you know, you na- the job of a manager is really like, you know, being the air traffic controller. And boy, that is hard these days because there are yeah. so many things you need to pay attention to. And so I've had that conversation that. recently with managers. And even in this piece, I, well, during the panel, I brought up that billboard story and they mentioned this in in that and just to remind people the name of this panel or the title of the panel was navigating new strategies how anr artist marketing and distribution come together in the age of streaming so but like you just said the article dan points out managers are still essential you know and he pointed out that the panelists largely largely agreed with a billboard story earlier this month, suggesting that with all the managers' responsibilities for these, you know, these days, the standard 20% of income is almost too little given their importance. Right. Uh, quote unquote, or quote, the, the days of an artist needing to have a label are behind us. The problem is a label would handle a lot of things for a manager. That means a manager needs to manage teams and a budget and build out a radio team and know a little of everything, touring, what a label does, publishing, digital media, and advertising. Um, it's, it's really important that a manager is super well-rounded, but not all managers are, and it's okay if you're not. And this is, that was Hallie Anderson that, you know, from Alchemy that pointed that out. That's okay if you're maybe an older manager that was really focused on touring and merch and maybe don't know some of these other things. But right now, the music industry, there's too many moving parts to not have, if you're not going to do it as the manager, make sure you bring in a team that does handle that stuff. Right. And they talked about, of course, having a, or you guys talked about having a well-crafted story to tell. And this is, again, the most important thing. And aligning all aspects of a campaign's creative in order to tell it. You know, you're talking about video content, social media engagement, digital marketing, all this stuff. You know, it's got to be aligned. And... Again, this is hard to do. And, you know, like you guys were talking about, and, and you know, we've both kind of done the product manager gig at, at Labels, and that was really the, 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 the realm of product managers in the day of the major label business, where you would kind of, you had one, if you were a manager, you had that one contact or, or one kind of first contact at a label, and they knew what was going on with radio. They knew what was going on with advertising. They knew what was going on with tour support in the market. That's so, right. you know. And and without but since that system now is is not work not what most people have or not what many people have, that has to be taken on internally and within the artist's own camp. And that's again a challenge, but it's something that has to be. And 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 by the way, as we've talked yeah. about a bunch of times on this podcast ad nauseum, there are just so many more things to be aware of. You know, that's it right. used to be we 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 kind of were afraid to say say templatize, but but it, there were sort of you know, buckets and, and verticals that were fairly common to each project that, that right. were things that you paid attention to. Now there are still yeah. verticals that you need to pay attention to, but there's just a lot more of them. And to make sure they are aligned and you're telling the same story and aware of what's going on over there with over here. Yeah. It's, it's a, I, I mean, I keep coming back to the air traffic controller, you know, you do not want to have the planes crash and yeah. you got to, you really pay attention. And what I like about the people on this panel, because we all do similar jobs with, you know, we we specialize in certain areas, for example, but in general, we do a lot of the same things. And we all agreed on basically five, uh, five things. One is that you really have to have goals, you know, otherwise you don't know if your campaign's a success. Like before you do a tour or before you do 
um, you know, an album release cycle or even start releasing singles, you should have some goals in mind. Like this is what we did last time. We want to grow our audience by this much or whatever it is. So number one is goals. Number two is that narrative um, that we talk about all the time is like, why should anybody care about your song, your EP, your album, your band? And it has to be genuine there's got to be integrity with it. There's got to be some honesty with it. But that narrative, if you get everybody on the same page with the narrative, it amplifies it and it makes it very uh, powerful. The third of the five is audience. And that is, you know, find your tribe or at least know who your tribe is. If you're a little bit established, maybe you're not a developing artist, you're a middle-class artist, and you kind of know who your audience is, you that's great, but then who do you want your audience to? Your audience, sorry, I'm I'm stumbling. I've lost my voice, you know, from this conference and you know all this stuff. So pardon me. Anyway, so audience is really important. Knowing who you're going to market to, mm-hmm. um, what like what artists would you like to collaborate with? Who would you like to open for? You know, those are audiences where you can kind of grow your audience. Uh, number four is that release cadence. You know, don't just drop something into the marketplace. It comes with, uh, you know, having a plan and, and you don't want to drop necessarily depending on the genre. You may not want to drop a 15 track album. You want to maybe space some things out and see if you can grow your audience. And then the last thing really, and it's, it kind of falls in line with number one, which is goals is really having a strategy. You know, don't just drop something in the, into the marketplace. We've seen that dozens of times. And I think this panel is, is really big on those five things, goals, narrative, audience, release cadence, and strategy. Well, and, you know, especially now, you, and you really have to play the long game. And so, you know, we grew up in an era wherein so many things were happening so fast and there's just so many, there's so much in the pipeline now. You really do have to be patient and, and, and get ready for the long game and have a long-term strategy because, it's uh, you have to. It, it's just the way it is now. That that is the real challenge. And of course, Jay, we're also talking about my favorite phrase from college: the six P's. Oh, which is that? proper proper planning prevents <laughs> piss poor performance. And uh, it's it as true life. now as it was then. That's it. <laughs> and it's really about the only thing I remember from college. Uh, <laughs> but uh, yes. So anyway, so you, great panel. And from what you yeah, had said, thanks. it was a super well attended one. And yeah, uh, it was a lot of fun. For, you know, whenever you get together with like-minded people. Um, I was honored that they asked me to moderate it. And that's the easy job, moderating, trust me, because I just kind of steered the ship. So we covered some of those topics. And then I'm like, uh, so Hallie, what do you think of this? And then (laughs) I just got you on the spot. So I'm not on the spot. (laughs) Right. Then I can sit back and sip my iced tea. There you go. Thank you very much. Yeah. All right. I got another story from Billboard, Jay. Uh, and I, I don't know. Have we ever talked about fraudulent streaming on this podcast? I, oh I can't no! Just it. like every time. Yes, uh, fraudulent streaming is on the rise, but solutions exist. Also from Billboard. Yeah, and, Glenn uh, Peoples. Glenn Peoples. None other than Glenn Peoples wrote this one. And so this was another panel that was on Tuesday uh, with streaming professionals talking about how to solve the bot issue plaguing the industry, including by eliminating the Pro rata streams. Pro rata, yeah. pro rata. What do you say? Pro rata. Well, you can pro rata, pro. I've heard it said pro rata and pro rata. I've never heard it said pro rata, but that's, there's no wrong answer here. Um, <laughs> Thank you for backing me up. But before we get into this, let's explain, because I had somebody come up to me the other day and say, 
you talk about bots and spin farms. What's a bot? What's yeah. a spin farm? And sometimes we just kind of assume because we've been reporting on this for so long. Um, a bot is just a little piece of software. That's all it is. It's just a little piece of software that'll do a task like playing a song over and over again or whatever it is. So that's a bot. It sounds really, you know, futuristic. It's not. It's just a little piece of code. A spin farm. Now we've shared some photos, you know, just internally, you know, mm -hmm. with, uh, with ourselves. They're crazy when you see some of this. Hypebot uh, did a story last week um, and showed a video of a spin farm. A spin farm, typically, they come in different shapes and sizes, but typically it's, think of it as a room with like hundreds of devices like, uh, you know, like it, let's just say it's an iPhone for sake of arguing. And they're all wired into one computer. And what that computer does is says, okay, this uh, particular person paid me X amount of dollars to get X amount of spins. And so the, those machines, those uh, iPhones will play that song over and over and over and over again until they get that. And then they've gotten really good at disguising it. So it doesn't necessarily look like it's coming from a certain market or that they're all coming from the same place. Now, typically they do come from uh, outside of the U S typically mm -hmm. they do come from the free tier. Those are two kind of giveaways, but it, sometimes you can see them all coming from one country, but not always. So just for those who didn't know what bots and spin farms are, that's kind of a high level view. Sure. And you know, this being the music business, people are always looking to try to game the system. No, and you take that yeah, back. I know, I know it. It's, it seems uh, counterintuitive, but yes, there are people out there that are trying <laughs> to game the system. Yeah. And, uh, and so you have the demand. And as we've talked about a number of times, you know, there, there can, people doing this could be several layers away from the artist. And, yeah. you know, sometimes you can hire a publicist or you hire a That's person right. doing conventional radio things and they throw that in or that right. is part of You may of not the even know it, right? You may not even know it. Yeah. And God help you if you get booted from one of the yeah. service providers. Boy, you know, then getting back on can be really challenged. So there are serious ramifications. If By you the way, caught. I forgot to tell you, um, I reached out to Jen Massey, who's head of indies at Spotify. And, mm -hmm. and I, I really dig her. Anyway, I asked her if she would come on and talk about bots and spin farms. Mm. And she said yes. So what we're going to do is record a little uh, segment uh, for that. So I don't know if it's going to be done this week. You know, we've all been crazy busy. Um, probably, you know, it's going to be a few weeks before we can get our schedules aligned to do that. But I look forward to having uh, Jen on talking about it. Glenn Peoples, like I said, when he writes his stuff, he digs in. And he said that when Pandora, oh, well, by the way, Glenn left Billboard for a while and went and was an analyst for Pandora for a few years and then came back to Billboard. Oh, so he has a little bit, he knows how the sausage is made a little bit more at Pandora. Mm -hmm. So having set that up. Um, so he said that when Pandora first experienced an initial surge of fraudulent streaming activity, it received 10 million logins a day from bot accounts. That means fake accounts, right? That amounted to half a billion requests and a large fraction of spins, nearly equaling the number of actual requests received from humans. And that was from a panelist uh, from his uh, panel here, a guy named George White, who was the VP of music licensing and the head of publishing at Sirius XM and Pandora. So let's look at that number, 10 million logins a day, right? And, and, and that's that on that. one... One, P, one DSP. 
Exactly. And a half a billion requests. Um, That's crazy. This problem, you and I have talked about it ad nauseum, and we will continue to because it's very important for our business because it means that legitimate artists are being paid less. That's not cool, right? Nope. And it's just really bad for the industry. And we read an article, I think it was about a year ago, where there were tens of thousands, if not 100,000 tracks that were pulled down off of Spotify because they were using bots and spin farms. And as you so eloquently pointed out, it doesn't mean that they were all trying to do something wrong or game the system. They may have hired some platform, and you see these things all the time. Hey, you want help with uh, YouTube subscribers or Facebook likes? Guess what? We can also get you some Spotify uh, spins for this much money. And I tell people all the time, and I know it's been in a lot of these panels, do not, do not ever do that. It, it will only lead to tears. And it's not hard to see what's happening. You know, as you've said a number of times, it's, you know, it's, it's very easy to identify if you just Typically. look at the numbers. Yeah. And so Billboard did an article back on May 3rd talking about 2.5% of ad-supported streams and 1.2% of subscription uh, streams yeah. from the Merlin Network, which handles digital licensing for numerous indie labels and distributors, yes. didn't qualify as fans listening to music they love. And that's the, the kind of the phrase they use. Yes. But you're, you're you may be thinking to yourself, well, 2.5%, you know, we're talking a kind of small numbers here, but no, miscalculating even a mid-single digit share of streaming royalties would result in, hun- or could result in hundreds of millions of dollars in a global market worth, of course, $12.3 billion. So it it may seem like a small percentage number, but boy, it could really amount to a lot of dough and well, like going you, to the wrong people. Exactly. That sounded really small when you first said it. You said 2.5% of ad-supported, which typically a lot of these are on, I was surprised that 1.2% of subscription streams, so somehow they're hijacking legit paid uh, subscriptions, and just that little percent, you know, one to two and a half percent, um, could be worth hundreds of millions of dollars. That's crazy. Absolutely. And a lot of these folks are using uh, VPN networks to mask their location. So it's, it's, it's kind of sometimes hard to identify where it's all coming from. Right. Uh, it, it, they were saying that the war, interesting, the, the war in Ukraine didn't result in a drop in fraudulent, in, in fraudulent activity, indicating any disruption to Russian fraudsters was quickly absorbed by competing fraudsters in other countries. So a lot of this stuff was coming out of Russia um, at, at some point. But it, even if that, even if they decrease, then somebody fills it in, some Somewhere else in the world because there's right. money to be made well and there's a re like they point out in, in that panel why would anybody do this well there's a lot of reasons why a person would buy illegal streams people uh this is from michael uh, pelsinski uh, vp of strategy at soundcloud he said there's numerous reasons why uh, somebody would buy illegal streams people might feel pressured to buy fraudulent streams just to be in the arms race, as he puts it, you know, just as an athlete might take performance enhancing drugs only to keep up with their peers. Artists might feel that competing honestly puts them at a disadvantage. I can tell you from firsthand knowledge that is absolutely true. But the other part of it, no one's really talking about now is the missed opportunities that you get when your social footprint isn't large enough in air quotes, or you're not getting enough activity on DSPs like Spotify And I've had clients come to me and say, I know we didn't make it on that festival because our footprint wasn't large enough. Our stream velocity isn't high enough. And so you can see why 
these developing artists are a little bit desperate. And let's face it, it's not just developing artists anymore. It's artists at every level. Absolutely. Uh, They did say, though, of course, in the article, one thing that could alleviate the problem is changing how royalties are paid. Subscription services pay rights holders on a pro rata basis. All subscription fees are pooled and divvied up according to Track's share of total revenue. That means a portion of any given subscriber's fees will end up in the pockets of artists they don't listen to. It's one of the pitfalls of the pro rata model, said uh, this person for the article. Um, Yeah. Excuse me. Uh, since March 2020, uh, since March of this year, SoundCloud uh, has uh, that pays royalties from an individual. Uh, SoundCloud has employed a user centric model for That's independent right. artists, and that pays royalties from an individual subscriber's fees. For major and independent labels, however, the pro rata method reminds remains <laughs> terrible today. The standard at <laughs> SoundCloud and other platforms. So that is potentially an answer. Yes, let's touch on that just really quickly. Uh, the pro rata model, you know, that's what they call the big pool, and we've talked yep. about that a lot. Um, and they talk about SoundCloud and this user centric. And just so folks know, you know, this user centric is really as simple as you think it is. That means if I listen to the Accidentals all month, then they get my nine ninety nine basically. Um, yeah. Whereas. The other way, this uh, pro rata is really all the money is put into a big pool and they pull out, you know, based on a percentage of plays. And sometimes that can mean that I'm paying a little bit for Doja Cat or Billie Eilish um, or something. Um, it's, it's interesting. There are some people who claim that there won't be that big of a difference if we convert to the user centric. And then there are other very smart people who are saying the opposite. So I don't know yet where that's going to fall. We'll see what happens with SoundCloud, but I just love that they had this panel Mm -hmm. that they're talking about all of these issues. It's out in the open. The DSPs are talking about it. The press is talking about it. The industry is talking about it and it's a big problem. And hopefully like a lot of things, like we were talking about, you know, how songwriters are paid in the CRB. I think part of the solution is just making it part of the conversation. Yes, but it is getting uh, bigger. You know, the problem is getting bigger and that's not right. going to change. So right. uh, it yeah, it's worth talking about um, and, and letting everyone know. And like we've talked about a number of times, you know, you could be doing it and you don't know it. You know, it could be somebody working on your behalf who was doing it with the best of intentions, but boy, it could really trip you up. That's right. All right. We have a third article from Billboard. Another Uh, one from Glenn Peoples. Another Billboard article. That's right. Labels are still pushing for 360 deals, but um, I'm sorry, but I was looking at the one previous. Labels are still pushing for 360 deals, but the terms are better. Yeah. And that's uh, encouraging, I guess is the right word. Um, 360 deals, of course, came up as uh, before the rise of streaming income kind of really made the business a much more stable and profitable business that it is that it is today. Um, so it's understandable why they went there in the first place. And that's, of course, 360 means taking bits of, of, a, of an artist's revenue stream that historically the labels were not participating in, right. whether it's merch, whether it's touring. And they mentioned even in here some contracts that if, if a, an artist got an acting gig, that perhaps they could pull from that. I'd, I'd never heard of that. But, boy, well, you know, that was yeah. kind of shocking. 
I'm not I'm not against the 360 deal if it's mm-hmm. done right. The way that right. I see it is the people who are doing it well, they're getting you revenue in let's say that they participate in merch. Well, maybe they're striking a big merch deal that you couldn't have struck on your own. Exactly. And that makes yeah. a lot of sense. I know when you talk about sync licensing and for those that don't know, that's basically when you get your music placed in film, TV, games, things like that. There's money to be made there. Quite a bit of money actually. And a lot of times when you work with somebody to secure a sync, it's a 50-50 split. And some people will say, well, why do they get so much money? Well, because you wouldn't have gotten that Mm -hmm. um, without them. And I think you have to look at the 360 deal like that in that if they're participating in other revenue streams, let's say it's touring revenue or sync licensing or merch or whatever it is, if they're actively out there, you know, fighting for you and being an evangelist and getting business for you, then I think that it's worth it because we talk about this so often that there's not a lot of revenue for developing artists, especially in sales streams and downloads. And really some of this revenue is coming from somewhere else. And I think they mentioned in the article, and I remembered this, that um, the the first kind of uh, band um, that was doing that was Paramore. Um, we're, yes. They were one of the very first kind of 360 deals. Um, so I, I think it's real interesting. Like you mentioned, they were pretty popular, you know, around the download era when um, a lot of physical goods weren't selling that well. It was on a downward trajectory. Uh, certainly um, we had the downloads and they had their day in the sun, but it was pre-streaming. So the record labels were l- looking to survive. Um, but again, if, if they're fighting for you and, and putting some of those deals together, I think they should participate financially. What the article has mentioned that while a lot of these three, you know, 360 deal terms are, that are in typical contracts still exist, um, the 360 deal has become more of a starting point than a foregone conclusion, according to a lot of folks that, that were interviewed for this article. So what began 16 years ago to keep labels afloat, essentially, isn't as necessary in today's booming market. So that means an artist's attorney can often exclude certain revenue streams and negotiate a lower share of non-recorded music revenue owed to the label. And artists also have an, have an easier time getting a shelter, they call it in quotation marks, ah. an amount of, amount of income protected from the label. A label that might have taken 20% of all non-recorded music revenue in years past could uh, might now just take 5 or 10% above a certain threshold, say $500,000. So I hadn't heard the, of that shelter before. That's, I had neither. That's super yes. interesting, you know. Yes. They, they said that, you know, like this artist is able to keep more money in their pocket before I mean be, before the label start participating. That was from Matt Cunningham. Um, from Riffle's level Levy Fields. Sorry, I'm just stumbling all over this. A, a, a shelter um, that you just mentioned, a quote unquote shelter for touring and brand endorsement deals, is especially important for a young artist building a recording career. And that was said by uh, Sarah Scott from LaPolt Law. And we talk about Dina LaPolt on here all the time. This is the artist's bread and butter their only source of income for a while. So that's that's interesting. That's kind of new to me, this shelter, which is basically a carve-out in a 360 deal. Right. Now, they did say in the article, which is really interesting as well, one exception, however. So, and this is all because of what Taylor Swift did. And we've uh, talked about this a number of times. And, and this really puts an exclamation point on how unique Taylor Swift's 
uh, situation was when she started re-recording her hits. You know, she this the re-recording of hits has been gone on for a very long time, and you and I have both worked with a sort of established and heritage artists <clears throat> that reach a certain point in their career where they re-record some of their hits so they can maybe keep a lot of more of that sync licensing, things like that. But I don't recall ever an artist that was really at the top of their game in terms of popularity and and, uh, writing new music like Taylor Swift has that went back and re-recorded some of her earlier albums like she has. And that has really changed and and made labels wake up. So in years past, I think uh, language and contracts forbid them to do re-records uh, for a certain amount of time. Yeah, And what that's this article right. is, is mentioning that uh, it's still that case, but now they're rec- requiring artists to wait a much longer period of time uh, yeah, until we saw they that can coming, record, right? yeah, exactly, new versions of tracks released under contracts. So yeah. um, that's a really interesting point that they made. So We, that, we knew that was going to happen. Uh, yes, and, of course. Know, I, I saw Kiss did this uh, like 10 years ago, but they did it not with albums. They did it with their greatest hits. And then they put that greatest hits out in Japan. And then later it, it became, I think, part of a Walmart exclusive here. Um, but again, those are the versions they can use for sync. So they keep the lion's share of the sync. Now, yeah. a lot of people think that these 360 deals are for developing artists or new signings. But that's not really true. Established artists, you know, once hated this, Right. But, you know, at the most extreme end of the spectrum, Universal Music now has partnerships with Drake, The Weeknd, you know, and that cover recorded music, but also publishing, sponsorships, visual media. I'll bet some of these things include NFTs, merchandising and branding. Even without a superstar's negotiating leverage, a a, a young artist can get a sensible 360 deal, they say. Right. But the reason that, that, that there's a little bit more flexibility in these, of course, is that um, artists don't need labels as much as they used to. And this, as the article says, in the past, they relied on labels and distributors to get their CDs onto shelves and be heard on radio. Today, digital distribution, inexpensive, brick and mortar stores, not necessary, radio exposure, less critical to success. So artists need, I'm sorry, labels need the artists a little bit more than they did call it, say it a decade ago. And so there's a, they're a little bit more flexible. And of course, with competition for artists and with the independence being a viable alternative, they're willing to spend a little bit more money to close the deal. So we're back almost to some times when advances are becoming a thing again. And boy, yeah. that's really interesting to read as well. Yeah. There's a great quote here from Josh Taylor Anderson. He's the founder of artist management firm, Cassette entertainment. He said, many artists don't need to spend a lot of money. An emerging artist doesn't need a million dollars. You need to build an audience organically that requires PR, playlist pitching, and, and, you know, to streaming services and a social media strategy. And he says, these are things that major labels are really bad at. Right. Yeah. Sadly. Yikes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. I wouldn't go that far, but bold statement there, uh, Josh. But he was saying too, you know, let's say you do get a big advance and a big commitment, bit of a downside, you know, you have to essentially pay back the record to the record labels for that advance. So even when the music business is booming, how and when artists can recoup advance advances matters for both the label and the artist. Yes. So, uh, yeah. you know, it's changing. And uh, as, as this industry is, it's ever changing. And it's interesting yeah. to see, like you said, a lot of those things are still, I, I, 
you shouldn't necessarily, or I would, in my opinion, if you're an artist, you shouldn't mind paying for some of those services if the labels are delivering, you know, bringing bringing monies in that you would not typically have had if you were self-distributing. I agree. More conventional yeah, it's, deal. It's not the negative thing that it might uh, sound like. So three of the four stories for the first time this week were from Billboard, two from Glenn Peebles. I feel like next time I see him, I'm going to buy him lunch or something for making our job so easy. Uh, just the cover. Maybe he should buy you lunch. I'm just saying. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, You know, a lot of this coverage from uh, the music biz conference um, has been phenomenal. Um, I'm just so thrilled. I got to take part in it and uh, even help sponsor it. Um, The last story we have today is written by our friend, guru, mentor, therapist, uh, Chris Castle. And I know you read the headline, but I'm going to read it again because it's so good. Um, More bizarre goings on at the Copyright Royalty Board, this time with additional Google, fava beans, and a fine Chianti. Yeah, he is nothing (laughs) if not sassy, right? Chris, I know he's a listener of this podcast. Chris, you are sassy. That's right. Well, it starts off, he's saying, one of the main beefs I've had with a copyright royalty board is the secrecy in plain sight. He says, very few people follow what's going on there, yet every time you move a rock, another toad hops out. (laughs) Now that we are turning our attention to the streaming mechanical proceeding, which as we were told ad nauseum is the important one, don't you know? The first thing we find is the shameful antics of Google on full display. Oh, no. Yeah. Oh boy. Yeah, so it's it's a bit confusing, but we'll do our best to kind of explain it. He says, remember, the Copyright Royalty Board split the rate proceedings in two. One was for the physical and download mechanical, which is paid by record companies, and one for the streaming mechanical, which is paid by the DS, by the digital music services, the DSPs, yeah. all under the compulsory license, which was adopted for the huge benefit of each music user. <laughs> and of course, you, you, can, you can hear him smiling as he's writing this. And of course, if it's compulsory, it takes, he said, there's that word again, away the rights of songwriters to bargain and set their own price without government intervention. He says there are alternate ways of doing this, such as the Nordic model of extended collective licensing that David Lowry discussed in an important blog post a few years ago. Yeah. So he, so he says the copyright royalty judges are given the unenviable task of divining what a willing buyer would pay a willing seller in the open market. Of course, that willing, willing rate is a complete legal fiction because in the novella of statutory rates, there hasn't been an open market for over a hundred years, which for the rate setting purposes means there has never been an open market for songwriters. That's really interesting. And the way he phrases it and explains it, you kind of go, yeah, what yeah. is that? Well, what this article is all about, and look, I love Chris's writing, um, I, he sent me this, and I, I, it's just so amazing how he digs into all of the legal stuff and actually makes it understandable. But what this article really is about is Google and a yep. and something that they filed, um, and it it's it's really interesting. And he actually has some screenshots of what it is. But in a nutshell, Google has said that the only way that the rates can be set is if the judges force the National Music Publishers Association, NPA, and the Nashville Songwriters Association International, get this, to turn over all, to Google, all your accounting statements and licenses so Google can determine 
if the past earnings back up their claims, the NMPA and NSAI, their claims um, uh, about royalties. Um, and, and, and it says, don't, don't feel bad. It's, it's not like they will be turning over the data to the public just to Google. He goes, what a relief, right? So here's what it actually says. And I'm just reading this from the legal uh, yeah. paper. Google's motion seeks production of all royalty statements from January 1st, 2009 to the present for each of the top 10% of songwriters receiving royalties from each music publisher in each calendar year, including 2021 to date. Google asserts that it must have the specified information in order to test, in quotations, copyright owners' assertions that songwriters' income from mechanical royalties has declined to, to uh, substance levels, subsistent levels. Sorry about that. So basically, you know, Google's saying, you know, you need to turn over all this data to prove that you're, you're having these financial uh, issues and that you're not being paid fairly. And I think that just really... Uh, lit up Chris and it's not something that's getting a lot of press like the CRB is right now but it seems you know I'm no attorney but what he points out in here is there's a ton of attorneys like you know a few dozen attorneys that are being you know billable hours working on this nonsense you know to prove to Google that the songwriters aren't being paid fairly Right. He, he, he ends this kind of article by saying you can have one of the biggest corporations in commercial history that rips you off every minute of every day and essentially prints money in the public market that they use to destroy your rights and creations, sick of their army of soul-crushing lawyers on you <laughs> to prove that songwriters are dying penniless because of Google's income transfer and still pay you a number that starts many decimal places to the right and laugh about it over stakes at the palm with fava beans and a fine Chianti. There it is. Ooh, that's that, that's, ooh, that's ooh. the perfect recap here. And listen, yeah. um, Chris doesn't mess around when he writes. And I would encourage you, if you're interested in any of this, check out the website, Music Technology Policy, mm-hmm. and check out their uh, you know backlog of uh, articles that they've written. Um, we'll continue to you know talk about them. The coverage on the CRB... I mean, they were way ahead of everybody else on it, and they really dig in to help you to understand why this is so important. And this is what this thing with Google uh, requesting all of this information, um, which is just a mountain of information. Um, you know, it, it was kind of going largely unnoticed until I saw this piece from Chris. So, again, it's super important. You know, we want the songwriters to be paid fairly. In fact, we want you know, everybody in the uh, ecosystem to be paid fairly. So Absolutely. Mike and I will be following this very closely, you know, on this podcast. Well, and be prepared if you if you do, and you should read all this stuff on, on the site, Music Technology Policy, but you, you won't be able to just read it once. You have to kind of read it a couple, if not three times, to kind of get the gist <laughs> of it all. And I got to say, Chris's writing does make it a lot less dry yeah, <laughs> because sure it does. is pretty dry. Yeah. But, you know, he keeps it lively and, and entertaining and funny with, with the way he writes. But it is galling. Again, you know, we, we I keep coming back to that word because you've got Google that has just more money than God. And here they are just grinding again, grinding and God, I just, it makes me want to, you know, get rid of my Gmail. I kind of just, I'm tired of them. So tired of them doing what they do. So, 
What are you going to do? What are you going to do? Yeah. So on that Great note, Jay, stories, what we have man. to do is, yeah. and you are, you're going to fly, are you flying back today? I fly back tomorrow. Or tomorrow morning. Um, okay. My daughter graduated from college today and I got to attend the graduation. Super Lovely. cool. Um, and yeah, tomorrow I'm going to get back on that plane, get back home. And it's, I haven't been home for a week or so. And I'm, it's, I'm not complaining. Uh, the music business association conference was the best. It was the best one I'd attended. It's such a great conference. Uh, my, uh, my hat goes off to Portia Sabin and, you know, all those great folks, uh, over there. Um, Nicole, Nick, all those guys, they just kill it. And, uh, Thumbs up! Great job, this, absolutely. This, this year. Yeah, yeah, lovely that they that we're back, basically doing it, doing it in person, which is so nice. So as we wrap it up, I do want to thank, of course, our sponsors: Banzugo, Hypebot, and Bands in Town. Big thanks for helping us do this. And uh, Jay, safe travels home. I'm heading out thank to you, see brother. Todd Rundgren and Daryl Hall tomorrow. Oh, so Monday good night. Yeah, I can hardly wait. Don't so. forget to give a recap to Merck's. Uh, um, publicist, uh, absolutely, Fran, she, a big Todd Rundgren yeah, fan, as, huge. as we both are. Absolutely. So, on behalf of Jay and myself, boy, thanks for listening, everyone. We certainly appreciate it. We recognize you've got a bunch of choices out there in podcast land, and the fact that you join us for this one is uh, nothing short of appreciated greatly by both Jay and myself. So, on behalf of us, thank you for listening. We'll be back next week with episode number ninety-three of the Ooh. Your Morning Coffee Podcast. You've been listening to Your Morning Coffee, the weekly music news program for the new music business. Join Jay Gilbert and Mike Etchard next time for the digital music news you need to know. <laughs>